This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Today on Late Boomers, our special guest is Tom Chapin, brother of the late Harry Chapin, singer-songwriter extraordinaire, who is the subject of a new documentary entitled, When in Doubt, Do Something. We will be talking to Tom all about the new documentary, since he is one of the key narrators in the film, and of course, is our expert on all things Harry Chapin. Tom is the author of children's books, 13 of them, including his new one, The Library Book. And his, he has 13 albums of children's music. He's a humanitarian and board member actively involved with Why Hunger, co-founded by Harry Chapin and Bill Ayers. Currently, he can be seen three mornings a week on Facebook on his show, Mornings with Papa Tom. Let's let Harry Chapin set the mood with one of his biggest hits. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm gonna be like you. Dad, you know I'm gonna be like you And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when But we'll get together then You know we'll have a good time then Tell us about how you first got involved with narrating and anchoring this beautiful documentary about your brother, Harry Chapin, called When in Doubt, Do Something. Well, I got a call from uh, my nephew, uh, uh, Jason Chapin, who said, uh, as often happens, people want to be doing something about Harry, you know, and and it was a documentary. And I said, oh, cool. If you need me, give me a call. And... It started out being a, actually a diff, totally different documentary idea. It was going to be about Bill Ayers and Harry Chapin, who together founded Why Hunger. And, and Bill and Harry, that was 1974 to 75. And, uh, and as they started working on, the, on, the, on the, the, the documentary, it became more and more about Harry, this extraordinary character who uh, was a shooting star and, uh, and went uh, roaring up and then, and then crashing down at the end. But in the midst of it, uh, the 11-year, uh, that kind of trajectory from unknown to star, and then the accident that finally killed him, uh, he was not just doing, you know, creating music, but he decided that being a, a, a music, musical star meant that, wow, 
I got a bully pulpit here. What can I do? You know, it's, it's pretty boring just worrying about how much money I can make this year. And uh, and one day he and he and Bill uh, Ayers, he was on Bill Ayers show. Bill had a radio show and they hit it off really well. And uh, and together they decided to discover the hunger issue. And uh, and and Harry started Why Hunger? Then you call World Hunger Year now. Now Why Hunger, which has been doing extraordinary work for all these years ever since 1975 uh, and uh, putting hungry people in touch with food and helping them towards self-reliance. And uh, so that's anyway, uh, uh, the movie suddenly became more and more about Harry and these extraordinary things that he started. And at the very end of the movie talks about the incredible work they're still doing and still needed. And uh, I was happy to to sort of revisit some of this stuff. I'm here in New York and, um, you know, and they recorded me at the, at the bitter end, the, that great yeah. Uh, yeah. club, club downtown and, uh, brought up amazing memories. And, uh, and the movie's pretty extraordinary. Now, for me, it was obviously very emotional to see all this footage that I, a lot of it would, I've never seen. And to see Harry who died 39 years ago, uh, to see him. <laughs> so hard to believe. Yeah, but to see him in hard. full flight, you know, in, in, yeah. in, his, in his... Well, the film covers a lot about your early family life. So tell us about your brothers and the early music and the things that inspired your earliest careers. Well, uh, uh, my dad was a jazz drummer uh, and very famous to a very small number of people, other jazz drummers, because in 1948, he uh, wrote a book called Advanced Techniques for the Modern Drummer. His name was Jim Chapin. To, to a jazz drummer, you say, it's the Chapin book, the white book. And, uh, and they all know it because it's one of the Bibles if you're studying jazz guitar and almost unfinishable. And so that, uh, he was a teacher and a, and, and, a, and a player in the big band era. And when that ended, he did a lot of club dates, but he also was a, was a teacher. His mom, uh, our grandma Chapin, wanted, he had four boys with my mom, and they, and my mom and he split pretty early. He was on the road. Uh, but his mom wanted her, boy, her grandsons to know the language of music. So she put us all into this uh, Greenwich House Music School uh, uh, and taking classical lessons. I took clarinet for five years, hating it. You know, Harry oh. took trumpet. Oldest brother James took piano, Steve took piano. So we had four boys learning music, having music in the house. My mom was a big opera lover. And then my mother remarried, we went to Brooklyn and Steve and I became members of a, can I turn that off? Are you hearing that ding or is that just me? Nope, we're Good. fine. Uh, and uh, my, my mother uh, put the two of us in a, in a boys choir, choir of boys and men in, the, in, a, in a Grace Church, Brooklyn Heights. So Steve and I became really good singers and, and I was eight and Steve was six. But when I was 12, uh, after five years of playing clarinet, my brothers and I heard a recording called The Weavers at Carnegie Hall. Now the Weavers, for any folky out there, they'll know who they were, but most people don't remember that in the late 40s, there was a folk group, Ronnie Gilbert, one woman, and three men, Lee Hayes, Fred Hellerman, and Pete Seeger. And they had hit records, number one hit records. An Israeli folk song, and so long been good to know ya, Woody Guthrie song. And Irene, good night, Irene, good night, Hudy Ledbetter, Ledbelly, 
song. They were my dad one. used to sing that to me. <laughs> oh, <did you> really? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, my they, mom did. Yeah, I, think, I think because it was his mother's name, Irene. Oh, my grandmother. How cool is that? So but, he always sang that song around the house. Well, well imagine in 1940s that, that these were big hit records. And then the right wing discovered that Pete Seeger and these guys had been doing concerts for left wing and even communist organizations. And they got hit and, and by the uh, you know House and American Activities Committee, called in, and they got boycotted. So suddenly it went from being a number one, really incredible out of nowhere, this this group hit, and then no, they couldn't even record. They couldn't do concerts. So for the next ten years, they were they were just boycotted. And 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 then in 1955, they did a re reunion concert at, at Carnegie Hall. It, oh. Everything had calmed down a little bit. They recorded that concert, and that concert, and that recording, changed American music. Tom Paxton, Peter Paul and Mary, the Kingston Trio, all the folk groups, including. The Chapin Boys Chapin. were inspired by that recording, and we listened to it all summer long. I was 12, Harry, Harry was 14, Steve was 11, and my brother James was not a musician, the oldest one. But uh, Harry, we listened to it in the summer, Harry says, we could do that. And he got a five-string uh -huh. banjo and the Pete Seeger book, and I got a guitar, uh, and, and, and we became a trio, the Shapin Brothers, learning Weaver's songs first, then other songs, and over the years, eventually learning, starting to write our own material, and that's how we started in this kind of music, the acoustic music. And uh, looking back, I feel so blessed at at being totally into singing, songwriting, and and folk music. At that time, 1958, I think it was seven, maybe summer of 57, 58. I was 12 years old. And the rest of my life, but that whole first part were those incredible music that was on the radio. The radio was wide open. It wasn't this tight little playlists. It was, you know, first of all, the, all the folk artists and then the Beatles hit and then, you know, uh, you know Paul Simon and, you know, Simon Garfield and, and, and then Dylan and on and on and, uh, and rock and roll and the, and, 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 and the great, uh, uh, black artists and, and, and the soul stuff. So it, it was a marvelous time in terms of my life of being in, influenced by all this stuff. So that's how we got into it. Uh, uh, we played as the Chapin Brothers for about 10 years. And then, uh, uh, and then that split up. And then I've been a solo performer pretty much ever since. But we're always very close. You know, my brother Steve and I are still that way musically. And, and, and same with Harry. He always felt that it wasn't quite oh. right if he did, wasn't performing and have some of his brothers doing it with him. You know. Oh, that that's just not that many people have that kind of opportunity to perform with their siblings and have it be so memorable and successful. You mentioned The Bitter End and uh, the filming of your part of the documentary there. Tell us more about what that felt like being there as you would performed there with your brothers so many times. Well, uh, first of all, I hadn't been there in a couple of years. Uh, I'd done a couple of benefits over the last 10 years where, you know, I did. Uh, and, but walking in middle of the afternoon, it's really quiet in the village, you know, and, and, and you go in this, and, 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 and there's the wall. It's, there's this very famous brick wall right behind the stage. And they had set up in there. And uh, at first it was just like, wow, you know. And then as we started, they started asking me questions about 
what 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 had happened you know i all that stuff you know was really memorable i mean i uh, we were managed for one year by paul colby who owned uh, we meaning a different group not harry but it was the year before harry started back in music um we were uh, a band called the chapins that uh, with my brother steve and myself and two other friends uh, phil forbes and and dougie walker and so that was a place where we played every other week with we the opening act for for everybody all, all all year long every two weeks so if you if you were a reviewer you know and you came in to see you know david steinberg and and woody allen and uh, all the, the comics and also all the you know all the musicians opening for T tim harden and uh and elephant i mean I, you know all these, all these incredible bands that came through often you'd see the Chapins as the opening opening act as we were managed by the by Paul Colby but but it really was about remembering all that stuff because you know I, your life goes on and I've had a very full and and uh and interesting life in terms of myself following interesting stuff along and coming back to that which was uh, you know in my early 20s and and seeing this again it was the same way I felt about the the the, the movie you know it's like oh this is stuff I haven't really delved into in a long time, you know. It's a trip deep into your emotional state, right? It's so emotional. Uh, it was. It got emotional toward the end. At first, it was just delightful, but yeah. then we started talking about the loss and uh, and what's not with us. And there was our moments we got. They got very emotional. But first of all, it was just like delight, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I kind of see my life, and I think we all of our lives this way. Sort of as a series of like little circles you know the circle well, like his college. song circle yeah exactly like you know you have this circle when you're in school and in high school and then you're in college and i played basketball and had a circle of almost professional basketball for a while and and the music is another circle and and all these things happen and and once in a while you you revisit a circle that you haven't touched in a while you know you go poof, into that little oh, oh you yes. have your guitar right there right i do yep how about can you let us hear a teeny, teeny little piece of circle? Sure. And all my life's a circle, sunrise and sundown. The moon rolls through the nighttime till the daybreak comes around. I gotta tell you, this song was written for me because I got a, a, show, a job as the host of a TV show called Make a Wish in 19, summer of 71. This is the summer that Harry got back into music. Uh, he was our opening act at the Village Gate across the street and down, across the across and down the street from the Bitter End. We rented the, the Village Gate uh, on Thursday through through Sunday through Thursday through Sunday nights for four hundred dollars a week from Art de Lugoff. We meaning the Chapin the Chapin band and and our opening act was. Harry Chapin. I know I was going to ask you about in the documentary, it talks about that you guys kicked Harry out of your band. Well, that was earlier. That was a belief. Yeah, I know that was earlier. And that's, how he, get to this. <laughs> that's how he happened to be very separate. That's right. Exactly. And uh, but uh, uh, the summer of, of, uh, of 71, we were playing there and I had also gotten the, to be the, I was hired to be the host of a, of an ABC TV show called Make a Wish, a Sunday morning TV show. Ran for five years, won an Emmy and a Peabody. It was a very hip children's show, and uh, and Circle 
anyway, they asked me if I was a songwriter, and I wasn't at that point. I said, no, but my brother is, and I sang one or two of his, two of his songs. They said, fine. They hired Harry Unseen to write the songs for Make-A-Wish, two every week. And he wrote Circle for that song. That. And so I, uh, I was, uh, it was Sunday night, and Monday morning I'm supposed to, to do, uh, to, we were filming in New York the first year. And, uh, and and Sunday night we've just finished playing at the bitter end at the uh, at the village gate, and we ha we went and had a, a hot you know like a hamburger. It's like midnight, and I said, Harry, uh, you got the songs for tomorrow? And he, he said, uh, What are they? And I said, uh, I forget what the other one was, and something in circle. He says, Okay, uh, I'll get them for you. I said, Hey, look what time it is. You have to go out to Long, Long Island, and when am I gonna get it? He said, Well, what time do you leave in the morning? And uh, I said. Uh, I leave at, at, at 7.15. He says, I'll call you at 6.30. So he, he take, goes off, takes the train out to, to Long Beach. 6.30, the phone rings. I, I'm, I get out of the shower, and I'm, I get a piece of paper, and, and he says, oh, got it. All my life's a circle, sunrise and sundown. It was actually that one song. It was that, that one day. Anyway, and that day, I walked around the Alice in Wonderland statue in Central Park with camera crew singing... It seems like I've been here before I can't remember when And I got this funny feeling And we all get together again No straight lines make up my life All these roads have bends There's no clear-cut beginnings And so far, no dead ends Just a verse and a chorus the song might have just ended there, except that my, my mom, I was actually living with my mom that summer, and she heard it and heard me singing it. And, uh, and the next time she saw Harry, she said, Harry, you know, <laughs> where's the bridge? That circle song, is, that's a really good song. <laughs> and and she, he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And every time she saw him, it was like three times, that circle song, okay, okay. And so he actually wrote another verse, which was, oh. I've found you a thousand times. Yes, you've done the same. And then we lose each other. It's just like a children's game. But as I find you here again, the thought runs through my mind. Our love is like a circle. Let's go round one more time. Of course, those two verses in a chorus. And, and wait a minute. He, Harry then the next day. <laughs> That year, gets Taxi, and he has to do a full album. And he's looking for songs, so he ends the album with All My Life's a Circle. Now, it's the next summer, I go to England to do Make-A-Wish. I get to England with the camera crew, and we're doing a whole other year of Make-A-Wish, and the number one hit in, in England and around the world by the New Seekers and did nothing in America. It was a follow-up to I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony. The number one hit in the world was All My Life's a Circle by The New Seekers. <gasps> now talk about how things change in one year. Harry was totally un unknown. And then, in, you know, he, then uh, Jack Holzman hires, you know, puts out with, uh, on, uh, on Electra, puts out Taxi. Harry suddenly is really well-known. And, uh, and Circle 
which was this little song that my mom pushed him to do. Oh my <laughs> the goodness! The next verse is is now, and, and and it's in the canon. I mean, it's, it's in the folk canon. So many people know this song. It just oh, every time I hear that song, I cry. It leaves me, me in tears. Really? Me too. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Zach Holtzman. Tell us about the great record deal that Harry signed. Oh my God! With Electra, uh, there's a story to that, isn't there? Well, what's really interesting, I mean, there's lots of stories about that. Uh, we were watching, uh, Steve and I were, were, you know, we were with Harry that whole summer in that fall. I mean, we, you know, we're very involved with all those stuff. And he was rehearsing his band and stuff. And we were very, but all of a sudden he, uh, he, he first gets a, uh, an offer. That we got a bid, it was a bidding war between Clive Davis and Jack Holtzman. Clive Davis at Columbia, where, you know, Paul Simon and Dylan were, and Jack Holzman at Electra, where Judy Collins and so many other people, The, the Doors and, uh, you know, uh, were. And back and forth, it went back and forth. And uh, and Harry finally uh, had, a, had a meeting with, with, uh, with Clive Davis and and agreed on the, on the deal. And he, so he calls up, uh, you know, Columbia at that point was in New York City, and he calls up... Uh, uh, Jack Holzman and says, I made a deal with, and Jack was really kind of pissed because he, because he felt he, he already had a deal, but this is the way it goes. And, and then he says, I'm coming back to New York and expect me at six 30 in the morning. He had taken the red eye from California. He's, he's in front of ha uh, Harry's play house or his, the apartment there in, in Long Beach knocks on the door. There's Jack Holzman. He walks in and says, I'm not leaving until you sign. What is it going to take? <laughs> And what it took was at the biggest record deal up to that point that anybody ever signed. All recording was free. They were going to pay for that, and it was it was it was a, it was a great thing. It was like unbelievable. Oh. Years later, I had a lawyer who took me in to see Clive Davis to maybe get a deal, and I sang a couple of songs to Clive. And he was very, you know, actually, you should you should write more like Mandy, you know, like or something, you know, you know. And at the end, I'm walking out. He goes, by the way. Your brother screwed me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that's really you never, you never oh forget those, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think the reason you saw me was he just wanted me to tell me that that he that he remembered what happened. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't gonna no. give you any favors. Right? <laughs> no uh, stories. Well. And yeah. we know how driven Harry was to eliminate hunger and poverty in the world. How did that impact you and Harry's wife and kids? All of that. Well, uh, uh, I mean, it's good and bad, you know. I mean, it, the, the reality is that that he was uh, he was running so hard because it meant that you know he loved to perform, but it became performing his last few years performing to raise money for Why Hunger, and he did almost I think one to one a concert for himself and a concert. To raise money for why hunger, uh, World Hunger Year then, and so uh, it, it, it didn't impact me. Well, there were some wonderful things about it. You know, I mean, uh, he he didn't want to bring his big band uh, uh, to do benefits because it cost too much, and 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 instead he wanted to, so he did a lot of them solo, and then he got tired of doing that, and he also he'd been at some place the year before solo, so he started calling me up. He said, Tom, I'll pay you five hundred bucks and pay your way. You want to come do it? Come do me, you know. What are you doing this weekend? Well, I'm going to Thunder. He says, "Well, not much." He goes, "I'm going to Thunder Bay, Ontario, and 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 Toronto." And I come with me. So, I became his benefit band for the last few four or five years. And wow. you know what? 
I was, I was, you know, and who knew that it would be, he was going to be cut short? So I'm just so thrilled because we were, I got a chance to, you know, spend time, real time, with Harry, just the two of us, and uh, which was uh, otherwise, you know, I saw him on, thank, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and occasional weekends, you know, and so it was really lovely for me. Now for Sandy and the kids, uh, you know, it was a harder, harder thing, you know. Um, he was, uh, he was, you know, he was running. And, and it was always that trying to be the best father in the world and the, but also be the, you know, the best singer in the world and also the best humanitarian in the world. And uh, yeah, there's only so much space, you know. I know my husband, Ken Cragen, managed him. Sure. And he does a little narrating in the film, too, because they came and asked him questions. And he was always saying you couldn't keep up with Harry. He, he you know, you bring people to see him at a concert, but he's then got to get on a plane to go lobby in Washington. He was, he was, uh, he was astonishing, really. And I, I, did, I actually went to Washington maybe three or four times with him. And it was pretty amazing to watch him in full cry, you know. And that's, that's to me, was, was, was remembering that watching the film uh, was just astonishing to see uh, how, uh, and Jack Holzman talks about this, and I hadn't thought of it in this way, but Jack said he was the best salesman I've ever met. And I never thought Harry's a salesman, but he was, he could convince you, you know, <laughs> and in a yeah. charming way, but it was, it was impressive to watch him uh, with a room full of people and, and expressing what should be done, you know. He uh, lobbied senators and governors uh, and congressmen, congressmen and, and President, President Carter. President Carter. And uh, I saw where Senator Leahy um, Patrick Lee sure. uh, was speaking on his behalf, both at the oh, memorial yeah. and he. They were great friends. Harry and, and Sandy had a had a had a ski place up in uh, in Vermont, and they would ski with Patrick Leahy and his wife. Uh, and they were they were lovely people. I'm I'm a big fan of Pat uh, Patrick Leahy. He's done great work all along, and he's he's wonderful in there. He, he was he tells a story. Well, you'll see in the movie, but he tells a story about uh, going to see President Carter. And uh, he was with Tom Downey, who was a, a, a congressman from the, from uh, from Long Island, and the two of them were in, in a limo, and, and Harry, and they get to the gate, and Patrick Leahy and and Tom Downey had forgotten their their uh, IDs because they were running around all day, and the guy the cops look at him and say, "Well, who are you?" And Patrick Leahy, and he goes. Harry Chapin, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so Harry talked to me. <laughs> they always thought that was the funniest thing that you know that the guy recognized Harry, and uh, and they got in and 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 Harry pitched a hunger commission, his wife Sandy's idea, uh, that, that 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 the U.S. should really have a hunger commission to see what to do about all these hungry people, you know, and and Harry convinced, you know. Uh, President Carter to say, you know, first he started saying, I don't want to do any more commissions. You know, and Harry said, wait, wait a minute, let me tell you about this. So at the end he said, that's a good idea, okay. And Harry said, you should do this. And, and Patrick Lay is about to say, Harry, take yes for an answer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I love, I love that the documentary actually has footage with Carter in it and the people around the table. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really yeah. valuable footage. That was so yeah. interesting. And, and, and it was Harry interesting. Just, oh, I'm sorry. Kathy. I'm sorry. He never took no for an answer, did he? Harry? No, uh, and and it was really astonishing. You know, as, as as Jack Holzman said, he was a fabulous salesman, but it was always for a good cause. It wasn't just to just to uh, you know yeah. aggrandize himself. But he he was a more and when he was try, trying to get the record deal early on, they have a wonderful story there about about Harry. Uh, 
they had they had a demo records and and he was doing a concert you know these these concerts down opening up for us in at the village gate they would call up every record company uh, in new york and harry would call up himself pretending to be joe schmo and say hi this is uh oscar schmidt uh, and uh, i i, I we, we want you to. We want to invite you down to see this guy Harry Chapin, and, and you know, and he did this whole spiel. And then at one time he called up uh, one of the guys who who knew his voice and said, "Harry, is this you?" "Oh yes." It, it was. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember. It was Vanguard Records. Uh, David. Uh, uh, my brain is my seventy-five-year-old brain is being seventy-five. But oh. anyway, it was. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it, it was amazing to watch him do that. You know, just uh, yeah. In a way that no other artist would would quite, and well, maybe, the, maybe maybe Springsteen or something like that would do it, but not. <laughs> yeah, one of the things in the documentary that I found so interesting was when it talked about how "Cats in the Cradle," his ah. big hit, has become a verb and actually a cornerstone <laughs> of pop culture. It and, really is, and yeah. so many wonderful clips in the documentary. But has your family been surprised by that? So, uh, well. I mean, uh, we worked to get it to be uh, one of the Grammy, uh, you know, uh, Hall of Fame songs, and it was not hard to do once once we we brought it up to them. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I guess it, it, it was Harry. You know, uh, surprise is not the. I, I don't know. It's always like oh, another thing. Oh, cool. You know, it, it's more <laughs> like uh, the only thing. Even even his death was not surprising. It was shocking. You know. Uh, because uh, he was just traveling so hard and so fast and was not a great driver and was just running all the time. And uh, so the fact that you run that hard and sometimes things just catch up with you. So I, I was worried about him and uh, and then it happened. So it, it, you know, not a surprise, but it was an incredible shock, you know. And, and I think in some ways uh, he never the fact that he got someplace and did something and got a reaction was never a real surprise. Sometimes it's just like, oh my, well, mm -hmm. I, I, know, I know what you call it, but just it was totally, yeah. totally fantastic being in that orbit, you know. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, in the documentary, it went on about Cats in the Cradle and showed how many TV shows actually used it in dialogue or played the song the current ones right now that that young people who are watching these shows today would never have heard when harry wrote it and it really has as kathy said become such a cornerstone of our culture so, yeah yeah and it's uh it's an interesting thing because harry and jack holzman had a fight about that song because they recorded it and jack said that's the single and harry said it's not a single, it's like a folk song. You never heard anything like this on the radio. It'll never be made. And Jack said, exactly, but it's, 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 it's the song. And Harry said, well, okay, if you make that, make sure that we, we get another single when this bombs, right? And then Jack said, yeah. And then of course it went to number one and I got a call from Harry, he was on the road and, and he said, Tom, it's number one on all three charts. And you know what, what I'm thinking? I said, no what? He says, how do I follow this up? He said, what a terrible thing. Instead of enjoying this, all you worry about is what's going to follow up? What's the next single? He said, what a crazy business. That's what speed. a lot of people say when they get Academy Awards. They say, oh my God, how am I going to follow this up? Yeah. And on that note, um, 
Harry, like he said, functioned at an accelerated speed. By what, 33, he'd been nominated for an Academy Award, an Emmy, and a Grammy, and he'd already won the Peabody Award. <laughs> I guess uh, he said, didn't he, that he looked at life as a brief flicker and always said, so when in doubt, do something. Was that his mantra? And is that how the title of the film came about? Uh, yes. Uh, he was he was um, uh, a great friend of mine and his uh, Jim Lipscomb, who was a documentary filmmaker, and that Harry also you know was worked with when he flunked out of school. He went, our <laughs> uncle was Richard Leacock of Leacock Penny Baker, the great documentarians. So when Harry or any of us got out of school, they would, he, he, we, we, if you call Ricky, he could get you some kind of thing, you know, taking sound or do something. But uh, yeah. but Jim Lipscomb spent a day with Harry and was real worried about just how fast and how hard he was running, you know, at the end. And, uh, but as, as, as John Wallace in the movie says, you know, he seemed like he knew that he had a, just a short time. And, uh, uh, but uh, astonishing thing. Uh, I love the fact that Cats in the Cradle, which actually started as a poem by his wife, Sandy, mm -hmm. uh, about her first husband and his father and showed it to Harry, and Harry made a song out of it. Uh, and But everybody thinks it's about Harry and his kids or, or Harry and his dad, but it's really was started with, with Sandy and Harry. Harry took it and made it number one hit. You know, because the thing about that song- That's fantastic. It's, so, it's true no matter what kind of child or what kind of parent you are or were, it's just true. Yeah. And uh, when we did the great, uh, 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 when Harry got the Congressional Medal of Honor, which only for the songwriters that have ever gotten. It's the highest civilian honor. The other songwriters were Ira and George Gershwin, uh, uh, Cohen, uh, and, uh, and Irving Berlin, and then Harry Chapin. Uh, but there was a big concert at, at Carnegie Hall, and, uh, and Judy Con and Sandy kind of went through his catalog and sent songs to various people about songs they could do. And they, then they called me and said, you know, Judy doesn't like the song that we sent her, and I can't remember what the song was, she said, and can you call her and, and, and talk her into it? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, you know, so uh. I called Judy, who, is, who, is, who has been a, a great friend, to, was a great friend of Harry's and, and, and for me as well. But, uh, but so I called Judy and, and talked to her and she said, well, it just doesn't sound right. Who's doing Cats in the Cradle? And I said, well, they gave it to Kenny Rogers, but he didn't want to do it without his full band and stuff. And uh, she said, well, I'll do it. And I said, well, it's, it's, kind of, it's like a father and son. She says, no, it's not. It's a parent and a child. And I go, you know, you're right. And Sandy wrote it. She said, really? I told him the same thing about her. And she said, well, then I'm definitely doing it. And she, and she did. She did Cast in the Cradle and kept it in, and she, you know, kept it in her, in her show for, for, for the longest time. She I wonder like, what Kenny ended up doing then. He did not sing that night. He came oh. and, ta and talked and, uh, and, uh, I don't even sure he came. Maybe he did a little film piece. I, I've forgotten now. There's so many people, yeah. but he was he was part of it for sure because he did so much work on the hunger issue. He was a wonderful after Harry died. Oh he yeah, he in, kept the yeah. ball rolling. Stepped in, and, and Ken Cragen was so great as well. You know, it, it, it's it's it takes it takes a, a country, you know. Yeah. And and the music industry has been, you know, uh, it can be dog eat dog. But it could also be incredibly supportive, and uh, and Ken Cragen has been one of the ones. Your husband has been one of the ones who's been so supportive of the Why Hunger stuff. And, Ken, and Kenny Rogers spent three or four years raising enormous amounts of money and 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 
an interest in, in this issue. I know. Ken likes to tell the story of one night when Harry came to a Kenny Rogers concert where Kenny was going to donate all the money from that night to uh, World Hunger Year, which was why why hunger now and he came on stage to get it and it was $180,000 and Harry said I can't raise this much for my cause in a year I'm so grateful for this money because it's like in one night you've raised what I run around the country doing and it so it yeah and then that really got Kenny motivated and Kenny did a ton of stuff for he was so them. amazing. And of course, that's what Ken Cragen and, and was trying to, as a manager. And, and my brother Jeb was, was and, and Bob Hinkle, who were, who were working for Ken with Harry, were always trying to do say, listen, if you do this right with your career and don't run so hard, you can make better money that way. But, that, but Harry, as Ken said, was unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> a bit unmanageable. And Tom, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your very successful career in children's music with over Thank 13 you. music albums, children's music albums. Can you tell us how that came about? How did that? Well, I, I have actually 27 albums now, you know. And, oh, okay. Uh, wow. Oh, no, but um, 13 Whatever of which. I saw 13, that. Yeah, thirteen of which are family. So I, I yeah, okay. when my daughter, when my, well, I had the show called Make a Wish, which uh, back in the in the seventies for five years, and people kept saying, "Do a, you got to do a, a children's record." And I kept saying, "Well, everybody's already done." My idea of a children's record was, you know, uh, Raffi or, or or the Pete Seeger, Birds and Beasts, you know, little little kids, three year old kids, and um, and there were lots of great records. Um, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mommy, and, uh, oh. all, and Marlo Thomas, and all those records, which were all for younger kids. And then my girls, Abigail and Lily uh, Chapin, uh, got to be eight and six. And the question was, what do you play in the car for eight and six-year-olds who have outgrown the little kids' music, are not yet ready for, for pop music, which by definition, whatever your, your parent is, it's what you don't want to be listening to. It's rebellion songs and love songs. And for an eight and a six-year-old, it's not quite right yet. And I don't want to be in the car with that yet. So they loved Bob Marley. They loved some of the Beatles stuff. They loved the Eagles because they could sing harmony. And they loved some of the folk stuff. So I thought, boy, this is the time to do a recording, but do it for four to 10-year-olds, not two to four-year-olds. Four to ten-year-olds who understand humor, understand story. You don't have to be too, just so simple that you can be tell real stories. And I can make it adult-friendly. We're the ones who have to buy the tapes and play them over and over again. So I got together with one of the best writers I know, John Forster, here in New York, a, a wonderful uh, theatrical and, and writer, and and, uh, and he and I started inventing. The Tom Chapin Canon, which is as in that as you said now, is thirteen albums worth, and uh, and it was just great. We decided to use the old folk forms, you know, around uh, 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 answer songs, story songs, list songs, and we used all those things. You know, we we took uh, uh, an old hobo song and changed the words instead of saying. Oh, the buzzing of the bees and instead of the cigarette trees, the bubblegum trees and the soda water fountain, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain. Oh, the big rock candy. 
Mountain is a perfect place for kids. Your allowance grows on bushes, and the cookie jars don't have lids. You can have your choice of any pet in the Big Rock Candy Zoo. There's a root beer lake you could dive into. You can paddle all around it in a big canoe in the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Oh, so we took that and changed the words, and then we took some classical songs and 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 used that music. Uh, you know. Uh, all the nations sitting on a blanket Having a picnic, the picnic of the world It's Canada and Panama and Sweden and Aruba To reenactly and not to mention Greece and Cuba on and on And so, and we did, and it was great fun As uh, someone once said The last great bastion of freedom in the recorded world Is children's records, is family records Because I could do a blues, you know Shoveling, shoveling, shoveling all night long next to, uh, uh, you know, a bluegrass number next to a classical piece, you know. Don't make me go to school today, oh, mom, don't make me go to school today. <laughs> I'll never hear Swan like the same way. Oh, gee, that's brilliant. So, so, I love well, it. Well, I, have, I have these wonderful collaborators. It's John Forster and then Michael Mark and John Cobert, my, my bandmates. And uh, and I did a recording with, with uh, Phil Goldston uh, for... for kids on the spectrum anyway it's been wonderful and it infected and infected affected and and helped my my songwriting for adults as well and and so it's been a, i have these two careers you know aging uh, legendary folk singer person and aging family concert person you know who's kind of uh, one of the pioneers of, of a certain kind of, of family stuff and and uh, a great number of songs and in fact that's what led these family material when uh, the COVID virus hit and we, and we had a quarantine, my daughter Abigail came up from Brooklyn with her family, husband and, and four-year-old, and Lily lives over here near us and her, her husband and four-year-old. And they said, Dad, all of our friends are really worried about what to do with their kids at home now 24 hours a day with no school. Why don't you got this incredible collection of songs? Why don't we just do concerts in the morning free concerts for them for half an hour so we started on uh on saint patty's day and today we did our 117th concert uh <laughs> 11 o'clock a.m uh, and 8 a.m your time 11 o'clock in the eastern thing a half an hour free concert you can donate if you want but a free concert for families and it's and with my so it's papa tom chapin and the chapin sisters and every once in a while, the Chapin grand granddaughters show up, just popping in there as they did this morning, <laughs> and uh, and it's, and it's <laughs> quite wonderful. That. Yeah, you see, they they do that yeah, off and on. You know? they're really delightful. But yeah. what I really loved listening to is the harmony when Abigail and Lily uh, are singing with you, or just the two of them, because yeah. that family harmony is very special, like what you and Steve and Harry had in the early days. It's it's absolutely. Like, and Abby and Lily uh, uh, started with their 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 sister J Jessica in California for six years, as the Chapin sisters working in the clubs and stuff. And then they became a duo. And uh, after they did that, they did an album which has done very well called "A Date with the Everly Brothers." 
Oh. And, and uh, you can check that out. Your listeners can. It's an amazing album. It's it's sold uh, really. A, it's been a great response, including from the Everly Brothers themselves. Uh, Phil Everly's wife uh, sent him a, on their Facebook said, "Nobody does the Everly Brothers better than you guys," and <laughs> which is pretty amazing. I think I am going to check and, that out. And also, I Boodle am too. <laughs> also, Boodaloo Bryant and his wife, uh, who wrote all the songs. Their son, uh, Del Bryant, who used to be the head of BMI, had asked the girls to come and have lunch with him because he loved how much they, how great they sounded on that. So that's been, been fun. So check out this, the Chapin sisters as well. And Harry's daughter as well, J Jen Chapin, is a wonderful singer-songwriter. It's a family affair, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope that our listeners will view the new Harry Chapin documentary, When in Doubt, Do Something, written and directed by Rick Korn, streaming, and in virtual theaters starting October 16. And if you'd like to donate to Tom and Harry's causes, why hunger, visit whyhunger.org or harrychapinfoundation.org. And you can find Tom on tomchapin.tv and that will connect you to his Facebook and you have to check out his Facebook <laughs> his Facebook page is called Mornings with Papa Tom you can go through his website or directly onto Facebook Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday morning 11 a.m. Eastern time and they keep them recorded on there since I don't ever get to it at 8 a.m. on the West Coast but <laughs> I see all the comments and people are they are getting up and turning it on for their kids obviously but it's the parents and themselves doing the yeah and and we have people in paris and in uh warsaw and dublin a number of people in dublin and all across america as well and and and, uh, Nor and north america and toronto and and the canada so it's been a, a wonderful and there's a little kind of little village of people who talk to each other now on because they're on every morning uh, yeah Some i of, see i see all the amazing. comments because when you're watching it even on tape you can set it so the comments come up in real time it's also on instagram and and if oh. you missed if you want to do it now you can it's also on facebook on on, uh, on uh, youtube they're all they're all logged on youtube it's uh, uh mornings with papa tom youtube you can check it out Thank you so much for being with us, Tom. What a and, delight. Um, what a delight. And I, our I've listeners. Met, I've met Kathy before, but it's nice to meet you, Mary. Very nice to meet <laughs> you. That was wonderful. Thanks. And we are going to take, take our listeners out with a piece of one of my favorite Harry Chapin songs, Story of a Life. Ah. Thank you, Tom. I can see myself, it's golden sunrise Young boy, open up your eyes It's supposed to be your day Now off you go, horizon bound And you won't stop until you found Your own kind of way And the wind would whip your tousled hair The sun, the rain, the sweet despair Brave tales of love and strife Somewhere on your path to glory You will write your story of a life Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. 
you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.